Pro teams have millions to spend, and they don't always spend them wisely. But when it comes to a great shave, you don't have to shell out tons of cash. Harry's saw customers getting ripped off by the shaving industry, with overpriced, underperforming products, and decided to do something better. They found their own way to make beautifully designed razors for a fraction of the price of the other big brands, so you never wonder if you overpaid. Harry's shaving products look great, and the weighted handle makes shaving feel great too. I like to keep my beard neat, and Harry's always leaves me with a smooth yet crisp shave. Harry's quality is top-notch, thanks to German-engineered blades made in their own factory that stay sharp longer. You can get a five-blade razor, weighted handle, foaming shave gel, and a travel cover for just three bucks at harrys.com slash bluewire. And Harry's has the highest customer satisfaction in the shaving industry, plus a convenient subscription option that you can cancel at any time. Getting the best doesn't mean spending the most when you shave with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com slash bluewire. That's harrys.com slash bluewire for a $3 trial set. Welcome back, everyone, to the 31st episode of the Take the Points podcast, part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. I'm your co-host today, Tate Seth, and I'm always joined by Arjun Menon. We're going to be doing a review of the Thanksgiving Day games, and we'll preview a couple games for the rest of the slate on Sunday. Arjun, how'd you enjoy your Thanksgiving? Yeah, it was pretty fun. So for our listeners, you know, me and Tage are spending Thanksgiving together at Tage's parents' place, so it was pretty fun. Um, kind of getting to watch all the games with you and and especially watching the the Lions game with you as we'll talk about uh, very shortly. <laughs> yeah, so let's just jump right into that. Uh, Bills-Lions, you know, Lions lose by three points there at the end as nine and a half point underdogs. And we really need to start with the end of the game sequence for the Lions. So you know, the, when the Bills score the go-ahead touchdown for them, they end up missing the extra point, which would put, put would have put them up four points. So the Lions are down three. And I think this actually helped the Bills in the long run because the Lions played pretty conservative on uh, that final drive. And it was partly because they were just playing four overtime. When, if they were down four, they would have had to go for the touchdown. It's very similar to, you know, how with a team, you don't want to go up six at the end of the game because it makes the other team more aggressive um, and by kicking a field goal. So I think I think it was kind of similar to that. But, you know, the third and one, I think, was really the the talking point uh when we were listening to Detroit Sports Talk Radio <laughs> in the car and everything. I, I like the play call to take a deep shot there because the Bills had seven defenders in the box. Uh they they rushed seven of those. So each of the four lines receivers had one-on-one matchups and Goff just missed the throw. And you know this was a Ben Johnson decision, not a Dan Campbell decision. And you know you couldn't just like convert on that third and one and then take a deep shot the next play because the defense would have switched back to shell coverage. Like they were expecting a run on that third and one. So I like taking that deep shot because they did have those seven guys on the line of scrimmage and you could have had your one-on-one coverage and Chark had a step down the sideline. Yeah. It was just, you know, a missed opportunity from Goff there. Yeah. I completely agree with everything you said. I was in favor of the deep shot. Obviously I, I thought he was going to hit it, but then obviously, you know, Jared Goff did, you know, what he normally does in that situation. I think um, I think the issue was Campbell was very scared of Josh Allen and Stephon Diggs or, like, just that offense in general on the other side of the ball. Just because, like, I think if you – first of all, the, the timeouts management was pretty bad, mm-hmm. not only in the second half, 
but also in the first half, I think like he left time on the board. He was, he didn't call his timeouts. I think like Campbell has done a great job with fourth down decisions, whether he's aggressive just by nature, or he's like actually trusting the the models and the analytics. We don't really know that, but I think his aggressive nature is good in that sense, but he needs to clean up some of the game management stuff. And so you get to that third and one, the deep shot's fine. But like you said, like even without your four starting guards, the lines are still converting these third and ones, fourth and ones at a pretty high clip. The sneak, the, the sneak shove was always there. Jamal Williams is one of the best uh, short down runners in the league. I felt that they could have taken a chance and, you know, potentially wait, took some more time off the clock. But, you know, at the end of the day, can't really fault Ben Johnson for taking a deep shot there. And, you know, I guess Campbell might have thought he the the Lions didn't have that good of a chance to get that fourth and one, which is why he kicked the field goal and eventually gave the ball back to the Bills. That's my thing, right? Like you bring up how uh, Dan Campbell didn't want to give Josh Allen and Stefan Diggs the ball back, but you didn't want to, oh, there's 23 seconds left on the clock when you decided to kick the field goal on the fourth and one. So you wouldn't be giving them the ball back there anyways. And like you've converted six of your seven third and shorts at fourth and shorts of this game. And so, and you didn't want to leave Josh Allen anytime and you're kicking a 51 yard field goal with a pretty bad kicker. So like Ben Baldwin's bot, which is team agnostic had this at a plus 1.6% win probability added to go for it. But when you factor in all those other factors, not having a good kicker, being able to convert on short yardage continuously in this game and not wanting to leave Josh Allen, Stefan Diggs anytime, it was a head scratching decision not to go for it there on fourth and one, but it kind of just cut like, you know, summarize like for, for a lot of the things that Dan Campbell does well, these end of the game situations, uh, you know, against the Vikings in week three that lost them the game there with his decision-making at the end. And then this game against the bills are costing the lions, these games and, and these decisions because they, they have shown that they could play either of those teams pretty close because of, you know, kind of like Amon Ross St. Brown or, you know, getting some defensive contributions like Jerry Jacobs did uh, in the game against the bills. But at the end of the day, like you, you do have to like start winning these games and show that you're capable of it because two seasons in a row of, you know, losing the majority of your one score games is something that, you know, usually expect positive regression for, but the Lions haven't seen that mostly because of their head coaching decisions. Yeah. I think last year we could have used the game management stuff as like, as a crush, like, oh, he's still learning. Like he, you know, was not, not even a coordinator before he Mm -hmm. took the Lions shot, but, but yeah, it's, it's a little bit concerning to see Campbell kind of like not have that much control over these game management decisions and not really do it that well. Um, one positive I did want to talk about for the Lions, Amon St. Brown, I thought had a tremendous game. So nine catches, 122 yards, seven of those nine catches turning into first downs, which is, you know, very good. He averaged uh, 1.11 EPA per target, which is, you know, absolutely amazing. And I think he has a great connection with Goff. Goff kind of uses him like Cooper Cup in that, in that sense. But um, I think like the the big takeaway I had from the Lions offense is like they just they're not going to go far with Jared Goff. Even if you add Jameson Williams, even if you get the offensive line healthy, you still see kind of the the crutches that the Lions offense have to play has to play with with Jared Goff. Missing that third and one throw, like look, that's not an easy throw, but the great quarterbacks will make it. Right. Like Justin Herbert makes that throw on third and 18. Um, Josh Allen makes a, a beautiful throw over the middle. Like I think Jared Goff just misses too many throws, especially in these close game situations. And also just makes too many boneheaded decisions that third and or the the spinning AAU uh 
throw that all, should have got picked off by AJ Klein. That was a really bad decision. And I think, you know, the Lions should probably look at this game and be like, it was a good performance by Goff, but we see some, some of the limitations he has, which probably means we should be looking, be in the quarterback market next offseason. I do think the Lions need to be in the quarterback market this offseason because Goff has, Ben Johnson has had to grind for Goff to, you know, do well in this offense. Like the things that Ben Johnson has had to do, you know, putting out the most diverse run game in the NFL, using six offensive linemen more than almost anyone in the league, um, you know, using heavy play action and then making sure Amon Ross St. Brown is always like lined up in different areas, much like Cooper Cup uh, was when when the when the Rams offense was excelling last year to, to get him open often is like all the things that Johnson has had to do with Goff. So if you could move on from Goff and get, you know, a, an opportunity at getting someone who can be a top 10 quarterback that can really elevate the offense. I do think you need to do it. What I what I don't want the Lions to do is go out and get another journeyman quarterback like a Jacoby Reset, like a Jimmy Garoppolo, where they're not the answer for your franchise quarterback. They might be an upgrade over Goff. I think both Brissett and Garoppolo would be an upgrade over what Goff is giving you right now, but they still wouldn't elevate you to the opportunity to have a top five offense. But like all the infrastructure is in place for the Lions to do that. I think, you know, with St. Brown being, you know, someone who you can rely on, uh, you know, in basically every game, um, you know, always getting open and then having some good yards after the catchability. You have your tackle spots at Taylor Decker and Penny Sewell locked down for the next couple of years. Frank Ragnow is one of the best centers in football and you can, you can figure out your guards the rest of the way. And then you, you're going to dump Jamison Williams into this offense. But like the thing is like golf missed the deep throws. Like he hasn't, he hasn't hit deep throws basically the entire season. So Jamison Williams is not a receiver yeah. for golf because we know he could stretch the field deep and that, you know, he has a lot of that deep vertical threat at him. So I, I do think that Williams was a pick for the next quarterback. If the Lions decide to go that way this off season. Yeah. And switching things over to the bills real quick. Um, I mean, I do want to like, just ask, like, do you, I, I've kind of moved the bills out of the first, like the best team in the NFL right now. I think the chiefs are the best team. Josh Allen just feels too inconsistent at times at red zone interception. Like you just can't be making those decisions when it comes to January. And, you know, he, I, th- I feel like Josh Allen's kind of going through that weird stretch. Like Matthew Stafford had last year where like, you can tell like the bills offense still has all the talent. Like they're still as a whole playing well, but they just make like too many weird mistakes that like they shouldn't be making if they're supposed to be the best team in the NFL. So like, what is your like long-term look on the bills going forward? Yeah, I do think right now the chiefs are a better team than the bills because Josh Allen is clearly not playing hundred percent. You can see that some of the throws that he's making with his UCL sprain uh, in, in his elbow there is affecting his ability to to throw the ball. For a lot of this game uh, against the Lions, him and Stephon Diggs didn't have a good connection. It was, you know, a big Isaiah McKenzie game. Uh, Gabriel Davis was was also getting some work there as well. But, you know, then, like, you, you're reminded, like, how lethal uh, Allen to Diggs can be in, in the final two drives of this game where, where Diggs catches the, the touchdown and also the deep pass that, that sets up the field goal. But they do seem to be, a, you know, a, a slight step behind the, the Chiefs right now. But at the end of the day, when, when the Chiefs and the Bills match up in the playoffs, it's really going to come down to 
Allen and Mahomes, like, you know, all the, all the other things that you do can marginally push you one, two percent. But if, if Mahomes has a, a, a super day where he just completely goes off the chiefs with the game, if Allen has a super day where he, he goes off and you know everything else falls into place, the bills will win the game. And if Allen gets healthier, you know, I, I think you could lead towards the bills because they might have a better supporting cast and a, a slightly better defense, but that might not matter against the chiefs. Like we saw last yeah. year when the bills came in with the number one defense and weren't able to get a stop. So, you know, I, I, I just think like once Allen gets healthier, we could better evaluate the bills going into the playoffs. But I, I think right now it's hard to like say for sure, like how healthy he's going to be if he keeps playing like this. Yeah, I think the other point is like I am a little bit worried about the Bills defense. I think for the most part, the secondary had been overperforming, especially with Micah Hyde out for the season. Oh, yeah, Micah Hyde out for the season. Christian Benford, Dane Jackson, and Teron Johnson is not like the most intimidating cornerback room in the league. Yet they I think the, the Bills secondary had been performing well, but I think this, you know, on Thanksgiving, Dane Jackson had a pretty bad game. He was getting toasted by Monroe St. Brown. Christian Benford didn't have that great of a game. All had, you know, sub 55 PFF coverage grades. Dane Jackson allowed six catches, 76 yards and a touchdown. Like, I think the return of Tredavious White, who played like one drive in the Lions game, I think that will be big for this offense, you know, having that shutdown guy. They still will probably have a weak link like Dane Jackson or Christian Benford on the field. But yeah, I think the the Bills defense showed some weaknesses um, in the secondary. But I mean, as usual, their run defense is great. And I mean, Matt Milano deserves to be in the top three linebacker conversation as of right now. Milano is definitely one of the five linebackers that matter <laughs> in the NFL. Um, you know, I, I think, yeah, his ability to kind of keep the intermediate level of the defense, you know, um, put together is is pretty crucial for connecting the two parts of the bills that they like invested a lot of resources in between the defensive line and their secondary. And yeah, like as, as Trey White works his way back, I think, you know, we can start to see an upgrade there from the bills. But, you know, I, I do think like the big thing is the Von Miller injury status news. Being able to have him on the field allowed the bills to have to be top 10 in pressure rate without yeah. having to ever blitz, basically, you know, having the lowest blitz rate in the league. But one, if you take Von Miller out of the rotation and, you know, you're, you're maybe not able to either use him as much because of injury or if his injury causes him to be out for significant time, then you're going to have to start blitzing a lot more, which puts the, you know, one of the weak links uh, on the secondary yeah. at risk. So that that's going to be pretty crucial for the bills. Like you go out and you get Miller because you believe he can really like elevate your defense and he, and he did, but you you want him ready for the playoffs because he is he is one of the clutchest pass rushers yeah. I think in yeah. in the NFL and he he comes up at crucial times and you you could really count on that going into the playoffs but if if you're not able to get that I think that could be big yeah I agree okay let's move on to the second game Giants Cowboys I mean I don't think there's really that much to talk about the game kind of played out exactly how we thought where Giants were just dominated at the line of scrimmage. Um, so in terms of like the pressure numbers, uh, Demarcus Lawrence had seven pressures, Dorrance Armstrong had five, Michael Parsons had four. So kind of like the three guys that I was expecting to have a day combined for 16 pressures against the Giants O-line who were missing, I think four starters, even, you know, Andrew Thomas, who had a pretty good day a lot, or like, has had a pretty good season, a lot, two sacks to Michael Parsons. So I think the Cowboys might, might be one of the most complete teams in the NFC just because Dak has looked pretty good. I think he had a couple bad throws in the giants game, but he's looked pretty good the last couple of weeks. 
And the run game for the Cowboys has looked really good. Like Zeke was like looking like the old Zeke in this game, like not like, you know, the the Zeke we are accustomed to the last couple of years. So the, if the Cowboys are able to like maintain this fresh rotation of Pollard and Zeke mix in play action at a high rate, which they were doing in the Giants game. I, I mean, I'm pretty bullish on the Cowboys going forward. I think obviously it all comes down to which stack we're going to get, because I think at times this season, we've seen both sides of the coin and, um, you know, we the Cowboys def- desperately need Zach, Dak to play at the level they paid him to be at. The play action point is interesting because I think, you know, Cooper Rush having to start a couple of games for the Cowboys at quarterback was huge for Kellen Moore. Like, I think Kellen Moore was a pretty good play caller last year. You know, Dak was playing injured the majority of the year, but they still were, you know, top five, top 10, a lot of offensive metrics. But having Cooper Cup or Cooper Rush come in this year to have to play, you know, where you're not playing with this ultra processor at quarterback really helped Kellen Moore realize that leaning on play action a lot, you know, could really help just any quarterback in general. Like we know play action is a cheat code and it works without establishing the run or it works anytime throughout the game is something that Kellen Moore is leading a lot on as well. And then just like getting the ball to CD Lamb on a lot of those crossing routes, you know, he's great you know getting open but also with his contested catch ability is is super good and then we also saw Gallup kind of look more similar to the Gallup that we were accustomed to in this game as well so as all these pieces start to fall together for the Cowboys offense then we can really start to see kind of the vision here for them going forward you know that the Cowboys defense obviously is going to be very very good the entire season but this offense is, has really taken a step up, I think, because of kind of like this combination of Kellen Moore realizing that he could use Dak and, and make things easier for him, hit on the easy buttons more while having, you know, all these all these weapons at his disposal right now. Yeah, Kellen Moore has been great. You know, really impressed by him. Dan Quinn has also been great. Um, I was actually kind of impressed with the Giants game plan coming into this game. Super aggressive. They ran a ton of play action in the first in the first half. Like, you know, everyone's like, oh, they're going to have to win the game with Saquon. Right. But like, no, you're like you're 10 point underdogs. If you do exactly what you normally do, you're going to lose this game like 70, 80 percent of the time. So Dave will lead it, lean into that variance with Daniel Jones. And we saw him like he missed a couple throws, just barely. They had a touchdown get called back due to a, you know, a, not BS because he was downfield, but an ineligible an, an man downfield. I think the Giants game plan was right. They just didn't have the talent. And, you know, before this week, the Giants were plus 115 to miss the playoffs. So that basically means Vegas thought they had a 46.5 percent chance to miss the playoffs heading into this week. Now the Giants are down four offensive linemen. They're down their number one corner for the year, the number one receiver in Wandale Robinson for the year. Kenny Galladay can't even beat out Isaiah Hodgins. And um, yeah, Isaiah Hodgins, like I don't even need to list the other receiver. His reception line was one and a half, by the way, which was an absolute easy under bet. Like the Giants started off so hot. Like, do they even make the playoffs now? Like, I know their schedule's still probably pretty favorable, but they just don't have any talent at, like, important positions. And I think, like, Dable has done a great job kind of elevating the talent, but I don't know how much further they can go, you know, going Mm -hmm. forward. Yeah, you know, they they have a 53% chance, uh, according to the the PFF simulation. And it's either going to be them or Washington, right? Like, two of their next three games are going to be against the Washington Commanders. 
for the Giants. So, you know, you you split those and then you're back to the 50-50 chance of making the playoffs. But you win both of them, you're probably in. And you lose both of them and you're probably out of the playoffs. Yeah. And, you know, I, I do think I would have to lead Washington against the Giants right now because they just have a better supporting cast around them. They're healthier. Yeah, way healthier. Than the Giants are. Terry McLaurin is better than any receiver that the Giants have. You know, it's not even close, I don't think, between between the two of them. And then Washington's defense is, is you know, pretty considerably better at this point. I, I think Slater is a good receiver, but he can't do the things that, that McLaurin does. And, um, and, and, you know, Washington's kind of done this before where they've started slow and kind of led this, this, uh, late season push to make the playoffs. This is still a very new staff for the Giants. As much as we like to give Dable and Kafka credit, they weren't supposed to be ready, you know, yeah. year one, the, 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 the moves that they made this off season, you know, kind of showed everything about getting ready for year three and year four. And, you know, that was fine because when you, when you let go of James Bradbury, you don't want to be ready this season, but then you, then you actually win a bunch of games and you kind of have to start making this push. But I still think that, you know, I, I would lean towards Washington, but it, it is going to be pretty tough for Washington to beat the Giants and, you know, two back-to-back games um, when, when you know, those are going to be like pretty close spreads and everything. But I, I, I yeah, it does start to seem like the Giants are uh, kind of like sledding towards missing the playoffs right now, which is pretty crazy to think after their start. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think the biggest problem for me is like, I don't know how the Giants are able to evaluate Daniel Jones. Like, Going into the year, like you had like somewhat of a supporting cast, Sterling Shepard, assuming Galladay was going to play Darius Slayton. Like they had pieces, but now you're reduced to Darius Slayton, um, Isaiah Hodgins, Tanner Hudson, who's a tight end, Richie James Jr., Colin Myrick. Like Daniel Jones literally has nothing to work with. And I'm not saying he didn't have that bad of a game. Like he didn't have that great of a game, but he's also going against one of the best defenses in the NFL, the best D line in the NFL with the highest pressure rate against a really bad offensive line. I think he showed that like he's able to make certain throws in, in within structure and he's he's aggressive enough to take those deep shots. But I don't know, like I don't know what the Giants can do with Daniel Jones, because right now it's just like they're kind of in that Tua situation where he just doesn't have pieces around him to help support him as a quarterback. And I think it's going to be a very tough decision come April, um, you know, what to do with Daniel Jones going forward. Yeah, the, the Jones decision is is pretty murky. You know, I think if you could get it back on a, a pretty cheap contract, like the Jameis Winston contract that the Saints originally gave him, I do think you you take that if you're the Giants. But, you know, anything more than that, and you, you could start to to move on and and work with someone else. I think the decision that is pretty pretty more clear um, to me, uh, after these last couple of weeks, is the Saquon Barkley decision. You know, I think when Saquon at the beginning of the season was playing at a high level, you could say like, oh, you could talk yourself into the Giants bringing Saquon back because of what he does for the offense. But Saquon has really fallen off these these past couple of weeks. I think the high usage rate really got to him. Yeah. And, you know, he hadn't played a full season in, in a couple of years. And it like takes, you know, a, a lot of beating to be able to have as many rushes as he's had this season. You know, he's he's had the second most rushes in the entire NFL. And that's led to, you know, having a negative 0.5 rushing yards over expected after starting, you know, the season as one of the best rush yards over expected rushes of the league. So I think the Giants are going to have to move on from Saquon. And if I did have to pick right now, I do think they move on from Daniel Jones, but I could see that really going any direction. Yeah, I, I agree. And in, in four of his last six games, Saquon's average under four yards a carry. Like 
I, I if that doesn't show like offensive line matters more than running back like Saquon's one of the greatest talents the NFL has seen but I mean he just can't produce unless he has that O-line in front of him and I guess even I the only thing I would say is if the Giants maybe had receivers teams wouldn't be like stacking the box against them because mm-hmm. there's no one for defenses to guard but yeah right now the Saquon decision is probably going to be a tough one for Giants fans to realize like if they move on for him it's probably for the best um in the long run but let's talk about a, the i would say the most exciting game on the slate which is patriots vikings actually i would say lions is uh lions bills is more exciting but patriots vikings was also a very good game um and honestly it just came down to like patriots just did uncharacteristic things that we had never seen before right i, I think i can let you kind of talk about some of those things yeah, it, no, it was the most unpatriots-like game I I think I've seen in a long time. Um, you know, our friend Tucker Boynton pointed out that the parents, the Patriots, cost themselves seven point nine expected points on plays where they committed a penalty, ended up losing by seven points. So you know that's really yeah. the difference right there. And then all the special teams mistakes was crazy, giving up the kickoff return touchdown, running into the punter on you know when your defense gets a stop uh, a 31 yard shank on fourth and one you know that should have been a go anyways but we know that Belichick doesn't like to go for those situations so you'd expect a better putt out of there and then on the defensive perspective not only was the secondary just getting cooked all game by a pocket passer you know which the Patriots always usually do well against they were letting the number one receiving option and Justin Jefferson have whatever he wanted. And we know that Belichick defenses and these heavy band covered defenses like to specialize in putting, you know, maybe their number two quarter at safety help on the number one receiving option for the other team. But that's been a, a Belichick staple for years, but it, you know, Justin Jefferson, I think just, kind of had whatever he wanted in this game and was pretty much open the entire game and, and kind of like being able to do whatever he wanted. So the combination of the penalties, the special teams gaffes and the defense just not being able to stop the the Vikings pass offense all game was was really weird to see from a Patriots team that had been playing really well and, you know, came into this game first in EPA per play on defense. Yeah, sim- similar to the Bills, like I feel like the Patriots secondary has kind of outperformed expectations like really, really largely. No one was really expecting Jonathan Jones, Jack Jones, Miles Bryant to kind of have the seasons they were having. But we kind of saw today kind of like the the lack of talent they had. I think Jonathan Jones, you know, had one of the, t- the toughest matchup in the NFL in Justin Jefferson, allowed eight, uh, eight catches for 106 yards and one touchdown. He also had the pick. He had a really nice play on the ball and the curl route that he dropped, which should have been another pick. So he had some pretty good moments that were kind of just overshadowed by Jefferson being elite. Um, So I think going forward, like the Patriots should be fine, but we kind of saw, we kind of saw the Vikings kind of expose some of the weaknesses the Patriots have on the back end with Jonathan Jones, not being like a true number one corner, Miles Bryant being a pretty below average slot corner. um, And just like, you know, Kyle Duggar falling down at the goal line. Like it was just a lot of things that went wrong for the Patriots in a game where they needed, they didn't need to be perfect, but they needed to like play at a pretty high level to beat a Vikings team on the road in prime time. Um, I guess the one take like positive thing for the Patriots is like Mac Jones finally had a game. Like I thought, I mean, you could probably make the argument he was the best quarterback of the day. Um, you know, his EPA per play was was lower than Kirk Cousins, but uh, 85 PFF grade, three big time throws. He was attacking the short, intermediate, and deep part of the field, deep part of the field, something we hadn't seen from him in any game this season. And he was distributing distributing the ball like every receiver had at least like four targets. Every receiver 
almost every receiver had like 60 yards. Like I think he did a good job spreading the ball around. And I think overall the game plan was good for Jones, but we kind of saw the limitations similar to Goff that Mac Jones puts on this offense when it comes to like late game situations where he doesn't trust his legs in these like third, third down situations. And ultimately like his lack of mobility hurt them in that final drive where he took a couple sacks and, you know, wasn't able to push the ball uh, that far down the field. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it was Mac Jones's best game of the season, which, you know, kind of is what we expected coming into this game. We knew that he was a high floor quarter uh, quarterback prospect coming out of college. And so, you know, we expected him to be pretty good during his rookie year. I think he probably overperformed his talent level a little bit because of what Josh McDaniels gave him as a play caller that year. You know, this year he has pretty bad uh, play callers where he's having Matt Patricia, Joe Judge having to run the offense. And then he's also just having, you know, like some development issues where he's he's making more mistakes than you'd expect from a, a processor or a uh, a pocket quarterback like him. But this is like the type of second year leap you want to see from Mac Jones, because one of the things that had to happen where either the, the Patriots offense or the Patriots team success as a whole was going to crater because they weren't getting good quarterback play out of the quarterback, or he was going to actually like step up to the quarterback we thought he was and kind of go from there. And that's what we saw the latter of in this game where he was really able to, to step up, you know, throw, throw deep, had a 10.9% completion or completion percentage over expected in this game. So he was, he was completing a lot of passes. And, you know, even though some of the sacks that he took weren't great, I think like from a passing perspective, it was as good as you could have wanted from him. So if you get this kind of quarterback play going forward, I think you could feel pretty bullish about the, the Patriots, but you know, you don't want to kind of see that, uh, the performance that you had from the defense again that might you know balance it out and the defensive regression might take away some of the offensive positive regression yeah um and last point about this game you know i know a lot of people were questioning why marcus jones returned that punt inside the five with a minute left like look i think like there is some type of like bias from him that like oh i returned a punt touchdown last mm-hmm. week like I can take kicks out of the end zone now. Like I can do all these things that I couldn't do before because I showed that I can return a touchdown. And so people were like using that as a reason why like Marcus Jones shouldn't have returned that. He should have let the ball bounce in the end zone. I actually disagree with that. I think like in that case, um, you want to like lean into the variance of special teams because even if the ball goes in the end zone, Mac Jones still has to drive 80 yards for a touchdown. And with under 50 seconds, like I think it was like one timeout, two time, no, no timeouts. How likely is that to happen? Like the, the their win probability was probably like 10% if they started at the 20. I think if you're Marcus Jones or the Patriots in general, like you want to lead into that variance and just like say, Mark, Marcus, go make a play. Like if you get it out past the 20, we're in a better situation. If you, you know, get to the 10 or 11, like he did, and you, you know, waste like a couple of seconds, your win probability probably drops like one or 2%, right? Like it's not like that big of a Delta where we should be criticizing him um and i think like the the decision to return the punt was fine because you know i know there are some prominent um frauds on on twitter that were kind of advocating that marcus Schoen should have let that go for a touch wreck but failing to realize that that variance was probably the only chance the patriots have to like kind of like improve their chances of winning the game mm-hmm. i i definitely agree with with all of that i i do think that he had to just kind of try to make something happen there because the win probability was so low. It didn't really matter if he fielded it or let it bounce at the end zone. They weren't going to go down and score anyway. So you might as well try to your hand at scoring the ball because we just saw it the week before happen to you. So let's, let's get to the Viking side of things here. And I think like 
when Coisito Fomenza made the trade for TJ Hawkinson, this is the vision he had for the offense because Justin Jefferson used to have to be the intermediate guy for the Vikings offense, which was a lot of, you know, throws between five and 15 yards, uh, average depth of target wise. Now Jefferson is the main deep threat for the Vikings offense because he can do everything because he's, you know, one of the best receivers in the NFL because TJ Hawkinson is there, the Vikings intermediate threat. And Kirk Cousins went from having the second lowest ADOT in the league before TJ Hawkinson was traded there to having a top 10 average depth of target in the league because he's he can target Jefferson downfield more. Jefferson had an 8.1 total EPA in this game, which was, you know, the majority of Kirk Cousins is 12 total EPA. So, you know, he, he counted for about 75% of his, his total EPA. Hawkinson also had four EPA himself. So you can see like not only is Hawkinson getting the ball, you know, pretty often uh, and, and, you know, is able to, to score or convert the chains. Jefferson is also allowed to expand his role down the field more where Kirk is more comfortable throwing because of that. And I, I really think that like all these pieces coming together is kind of making this, this Vikings pass off. It's really, really good. Yeah. I was also pretty impressed with the Vikings, uh, pass walking grit, uh, unit so as a whole i think they allowed close to like like set eight or nine pressures which is like really good considering the patriots had a top top 10 pressure rate coming into this week matthew judon didn't have a sack dietrich wise didn't have a sack um the patriots tried to get creative lining judon up over the guards which i thought was a, a, a really smart move judon did beat ed ingram early on in the game uh to draw a holding penalty but Overall, I think the Vikings O-line held up very well in pass protection. They obviously struggled in the run game, but that's kind of expected against the Patriots. Um, and yeah, I think just in general, the Vikings offense uh, runs through Justin Jefferson. Anyone who tells you otherwise is, you know, kind of lying to themselves or is Dalvin Cook's agent. So um, I, yeah, I've been, I was very impressed with the Vikings coming to this game. I think uh, Kevin O'Connell had one of his best games as as a play caller. And I think it's a, it's a big boost for the Vikings going forward. Yeah, for sure. I, I, on the Dalvin cook point, I do think he might hold this offense back. I'm I'm really yeah. excited about the Vikings pass offense. I think, you know, it could be a top eight unit with, you know, kind of how, some of the throws that Kirk was making last night and the weapons that they have available to them. But Dalvin Cook ranks 28th out of 36 qualifying running backs in rushing yards over expected this year. Negative 0.7 rushing yards over expected. In this game against the uh, Patriots, he had negative eight total EPA rushing. So basically everything that Justin Jefferson <laughs> did from a pass perspective was canceled out by Dalvin Cook. Uh, you know, 18% success rate on 22 rushes is one of the worst marks that I've seen in a long time. And, you know, Madison's like an okay rusher. And he's one of the, he's one of those rushers where his efficiency would go down as volume increased because of his rushing style. So I don't really know what the solution could be for the Vikings from that perspective, but Cook has really lost his, his step. And, you know, I, I trust Kevin O'Connell to lean a lot more into the past, but I understand why you would want to keep, you know, cousins from becoming like a pure gunslinger yeah. because that's not his game. You know, he yeah. works, he works better in structure Um, when not, not necessarily the run game is doing well because we know like those things aren't super correlated, but it would be just like when the run game is happening and like when he doesn't have to like pass three straight downs or anything like that, because that opens up opportunities for him not to do as well. So that that's my only reservation about the Vikings offense going forward is I just don't know if they're going to be able to figure out their rushing attack in time for when they play these really big games in the playoffs. Yeah, I think for the most part, so the Vikings have passed the ball 
2.5% more than expected, according to NFL pa- uh, fast stars, pass rate over expected model. Um, and like, I think you're right. Like that, that over like 2.5% over expected is probably much higher than any Vikings year under Mike Zimmer mm-hmm. with Kirk Cousins at quarterback. So, you know, it's obviously not really correlation causation, causation, but the Vikings finally throwing the ball more than expected and Kirk having his worst year of his career. It probably, you know, that probably should tell you where Kirk stands as an NFL quarterback. Um, and uh, he had he had his best game of the year. But I think, t- you know, the point you brought up about in the macro point of view, like the Vikings having to lean on this run game so much in prior years because Kirk wasn't able to sustain this high volume is probably rearing itself to light in this season but it's probably not the season you want it to happen especially given that dalvin cook has regressed as a running back but i you know that that was us kind of just recapping the thanksgiving games let's move on to previewing two games you know this isn't this isn't that great of a slate on sunday but um let's talk about Bengals titans probably the game of the weekend i would say um the rematch of last year's afc uh divisional round game like what is your kind of like outlook on this game i'm very excited for this game i think if anyone were to kind of get his guys going for a revenge game of some sorts it would be mike rabel because rabel has to be put in that category of you know kind of like the mike tomlin uh, cluster of coaches where we don't really see a lot of the things that they do. Like when, when we see uh, uh, Kyle Shanahan or Mike McDaniel or Kevin O'Connell adding, you know, value to their team, we see it on game day where we can see their play calls or their ability to go for it on fourth down, you know, really help their team with all the things that Mike Brable does. It's really behind the scenes. It's stuff that we don't have access to, but I, I do think that we have enough sample size now to say that he can really get his players motivated to play for these games and to play at you know a high level coming into these games so you know when you lose the way that you did last year to the Bengals in the divisional round where it's a very winnable game and the Bengals you know kind of stole one from you by getting an interception uh in in the two-minute drill that uh, basically put them in field goal range to the to to win the game. I think that's something that Rabel will really use as bulletin board material in this game. And on top of that, you have to add that the Titans are getting a mini buy going into this game, yeah. coming off a Thursday night game where they didn't really have to sweat it out either. It wasn't like a, a super hard fought game because the Packers are a soft football team. So I think that they'll have a lot of energy coming into this game and also just a lot of, you know, rest and and healthiness um, going into it as well, uh, which are not like super analytical reasons, but like Vrabel breaks yeah. a lot of the things that you know about <laughs> analytics. Yeah. So I give him a pass there. Yeah, no, no. Anything about the Titans, we just can't apply analytics to. Derrick Henry supposedly supposed to fall off a cliff, you know, leading the NFL in rushing yards again. Yeah, so I think my big thing on this game is how the Titans' defense is going to match up with the Bengals' offense. So the Titans' defense had been pretty banged up in the past couple of weeks, especially going into that Packers game. Yet still performed at a very high level. They're the best run defense in the NFL per EPA per play or EPA per rush allowed. And the biggest mismatch probably of the week, maybe of the season, Jeffrey Simmons versus Cordell Volson. If I'm Mike Vrabel or whoever the defensive coordinator is, I'm lining up Jeffrey Simmons over, over Volson on every passing down. And I'm trying my best to create one-on-one situations for them. Because right now, there might not be a better interior D lineman in the NFL um, on pass rushing, pass rushing situations 
than uh, Jeffrey Simmons, maybe, you know, Chris Jones, who's been having a great year, or like Javon Hargrave. But Jeffrey Simmons, when he's in a groove and he's healthy, he's playing at a pretty high level. So I'm pretty excited to see what Mike Rabel cooks up in this game against the Titans, especially on the defensive side of the ball. But on the offensive side, on the offensive side of the ball for the Titans, I think they really are going to need to have, um, have Derrick Henry have a, that great of a game. I don't know what I just said. They're going to need Derrick Henry to have a good game because the Bengals' rush defense has kind of faltered in recent weeks. Even with DJ Reader coming back last week, Najee Harris had uh, 90, 90 yards on 20 attempts. So, you know, they haven't looked that good. Ranked 24th in rush EPA, 18th in rush success rate allowed. So on the Bengals' side, they're probably going to load the box, right? So it's either going to be Derrick Henry breaking off a lot of big tackles or Ryan Tannehill being uh, pretty good in the past game. And Ryan Tannehill right now, top 10 graded quarterback um, running play action. He had a very good game last week, 85 PFF grade, three big-time throws. One of the best games I think I've seen from him like as, overall in his career. Um, I just think the – the Titans offense like worries me because they just don't have like a lot of receiving weapons. And I'm curious to see how that plays out against uh Bengals secondary that just lost, you know, Chidobi Awuzie. Yeah. I mean, I, Tannehill has been really, really accurate this, this entire season. And, you know, he's kind of had to be because his receivers don't get much separation at all, but like that, that is the thing that, you know, if you had to point to the main flaw about the Titans and like something that's going to hold them back, this year is like just like no juice at receiver is is going to be something that you know I I think like kind of will hold them back. It'll be curious to see you know kind of how um, Lou Anarumo approaches kind of this this game in particular from the Bengals defensive perspective. Um, you know because last year like the Titans did have AJ Brown, so the Bengals were able to do a lot of the stuff that you know, they, they were used to doing against these typical number one receivers, but maybe you do just sell out for Derrick Henry and force, you know, Woods or Westbrook Akita to, to beat you outside. And I, I think that is, you know, something that, that we could see from, from the, the Bengals defense in this game. And, you know, it's, it'll be, you know, kind of really interesting to see like kind of how the Titans like approach this season as like kind of a retooling year, which is why like you get rid of AJ Brown. And, you know, we, we know with rookie receivers that it, it does take them a little while to get going. So if you have Traylon Burks, Kind of step into what you could he be 60 70 percent of aj brown instead of not, not doing yeah. anything at the beginning of the year that could be the extra push that they need to get this offense to a little bit higher level than what they are but you know Traylon brooks just kind of emerged onto the scene these past couple of weeks we do need to see more of him going forward and that could be you know this game right here where if he continues to play at this level that's where the titans start to find that extra push that can kind of like make up for the way that their defense is playing um, as well and make them more complete team. So Ryan Tannehill is averaging 11.8 yards per attempt on play action, which is number one in the, in the league so far this year, like 11.8 yards per attempt is like an absolutely insane number. Um, and you know, he's doing that with a 9.28 out. Like I feel like teams are biting like super hard on play action against the Titans. I know, you know, Eric Eager and you have kind of done some work on that. And obviously he's not with PFF anymore. So we probably won't get those updated numbers, but yeah, Tannehill has been very good on play action this year, very efficient. And that's probably going to be one of the big deciding factors in this game, like how he plays. I, I think Bengals on the road, 
we'll talk about it in our batch, but Bengals on the road also worries me. I know like some people have kind of talked about how Bengals are better at home versus on the road. And this will be a pretty hostile environment from a fan base that just, you know, lost to the Bengals. So a lot of like non-analytical factors I think are going to be in play here. And I'm, I'm very excited to see how that plays out for both sides, but let's move on to Sunday night football Packers Eagles. Um, I think so. Eagles coming off not that, you know, a pretty nail-biting win against a pretty bad team in the Colts. And Packers is losing outright as favorites to the Titans. So I think my big question about this game is, like, what did the Packers do in offense? So the Packers this year, they have a negative 4.1 pass rate over expected. And the Eagles' run defense has been well-documented at this point that they don't they can't stop the run. They won't have Jordan Davis back for this game. So I think the Packers are just going to run, run pass. Like that's going to be their a script every drive. And I, I mean, if you're the Eagles, like I think you probably have to go away from like that too high structure and start adding that CJ Gardner Johnson in the box just because you need that extra guy of run support at this point because you just can't stop the run um, it, even if you are the best pass defense in the NFL. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I do think I agree, and you know, like the way that Gannon likes to play, you know, something that we talked about uh, on on the Wednesday show was he wants to invite teams to run the ball when he has his nose tackle there and Jordan Davis that can like cover up for a lot of the the runs that that go up the middle because like Gannon understands you know Eagles are a super sharp organization uh, that passing is more efficient than running the quickest way to to give up points is to give up explosive passes so he doesn't want the opportunity for that, you know, as much as possible, but, you know, we, we, I do think we have to see like with a Packers offense that doesn't generate many explosive plays to begin with, you know, either through, through the ground game or the pass game that they can start to creep up more in this game. And, you know, your the, the distance that the safeties will be uh, off the line of scrimmage will probably be the shortest that it is all year for the Eagles, because they usually play pretty deep. And that's probably how the, the Eagles, you know, defense will approach this game. And it is a pretty big mismatch, even if they were to send out, you know, the usual Packers offense, versus the usual Eagles defense, because, you know, the, the Packers pass offense has not been good this year. Eagles pass defense is the best in the league. So it is the second biggest passing mismatch um, using, you know, the EPA per pass of both sides of the week. So I I think that there are like a lot of factors that can really help, help the Eagles in this game. And, you know, when, when you kind of have Christian Watson emerge onto the scene, he is still just a primarily a touchdown guy right now. And like, that's inflating a lot of his numbers. So I, I still think that like the Eagles will be able to handle Watson, even though he's giving some, some extra um, push to the Cowboys offense in this game. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think, you know, going over to the other side of the ball, the Eagles offense has not looked like their juggernaut self in, you know, from the early part of the season, I think this will be a good get right match matchup for them. The Packers are also a very, very bad run defense, uh, 28th in rushing success rate allowed, 28th in rushing EPA allowed. So Eagles should probably have their way with them on the ground, um, you know, especially attacking the edges where, you know, the loss of Rashawn Gary will probably be felt in this game. Jordan Mailata has not been that great this year. Like he hasn't been his elite self this year, but, you know, leaning on Lane Johnson, leaning on um, the, the interior of that offensive line, I think the Eagles should have some success on the ground and, you know, this this probably won't be a big Jalen Hurts passing game, um, but you know, I could easily see him having a pretty good game on the ground along with Miles Sanders. So that you know, it's gonna it could go it really could go both ways because I think if the Packers 
opening script and first couple of drives start out well for them and they're able to control the clock and put up points on the board early force the Eagles to play down 10 or t- down 14. I mean, there's a legitimate chance the Eagles could lose this game if they're forced to play from behind. But, you know, I think the Eagles are are probably the better matchup or probably the better are definitely the better team in this matchup. And um, I think the Packers will have a tough time uh, moving the ball if they're also forced to play from behind. So I think it just whoever gets out to a better start will control the clock and be able to win this game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I do think that that's true. That's that's a big thing about, you know, kind of like the start for for these teams but you know like the Packers uh, offense used to like really specialize in these first quarter like kind of going up 10-0 or going up 13-0 and then their run defense wouldn't really matter as much because teams would have to pass against them this year that you know this season the the Cowboys um defense or offense ranks 20th in first quarter EPA per play so like that's just not something that they're able to to get out to these fast starts and then we know that the Eagles second quarter offense is is really really good uh you know and and they can maybe take advantage of that like they they bring first and in, in second quarter EPA per play so you know if if it's still you know 0-0 or 7-7 after the first quarter you know I think the Eagles could kind of kind of take over there and, and maybe try to put the game out of reach but you know you always can see the Packers sticking around like they did two weeks ago against the Cowboys where they they go from you know layups and three-pointers and they're hitting on on those three-pointers uh in their passing game yeah I agree so those were the previews reviews for Thanksgiving and previewing the upcoming Sunday slate let's move on to our bets uh- pro teams have millions to spend and they don't always spend them wisely but when it comes to a great shave you don't have to shell out tons of cash Harry's saw customers getting ripped off by the shaving industry with overpriced, underperforming products, and decided to do something better. They found their own way to make beautifully designed razors for a fraction of the price of the other big brands, so you never wonder if you overpaid. Harry's shaving products look great, and the weighted handle makes shaving feel great too. I like to keep my beard neat, and Harry's always leaves me with a smooth yet crisp shave. Harry's quality is top-notch, thanks to German-engineered blades made in their own factory that stay sharp longer. You can get a five-blade razor, weighted handle, foaming shave gel, and a travel cover for just three bucks at harrys.com slash bluewire. And Harry's has the highest customer satisfaction in the shaving industry, plus a convenient subscription option that you can cancel at any time. Getting the best doesn't mean spending the most when you shave with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com slash bluewire. That's harrys.com slash bluewire for a $3 trial set. Two bets that I, I like this week. Um, I, you know, when I was on the PFF forecast, my like favorite bet, you know, maybe of the season was Josh Allen over 42 and a half rushing yards, which basically hit in the first half. You know, he finished the first half with 41 rushing yards, closed it out for us in the second half. Um, but you know, just from a spread perspective, you know, I, I really like Seattle minus three and a half in this game against the um against the uh the Raiders. The Raiders yeah. yeah. And you know, yeah. like like I think like the thing about Seattle is like they they just are better on on both sides of of the ball in this game. Like Max Crosby is the only one on the the Raiders who can help them uh on on defense like the rest of their defense is really really bad I think this is again a big Geno to Lockett and DK game and like I just don't see the Raiders having anyone to stop on on that perspective and then I think the Seahawks have 
the the pieces in place to stop Devontae Adams from going crazy in this game. Like that's been kind of the, the Raiders formula for keeping games close in the past. And I just think from a coaching perspective, you know, the ability for Pete Carroll to kind of get everyone ready for this game while Josh McDaniels is not, you know, well liked and everything else could be something that that I, I see going forward in this game. Yeah, no, I, I like the Seahawks in the spot and everything you brought up, like the Raiders secondary is one of the worst in the NFL. So I think uh, Gino should have his bounce back game from kind of the stinker he had in Germany. And I think it'll be a good spot. So um, one bet I really like is Tampa Bay Bucks minus three against the Browns. Um, you could find a two and a half, I feel like, but uh, maybe some spots, but I'm seeing mostly minus three juice towards uh, the Bucks in the spot. So I like laying minus 115, one, minus 118 on the Bucks minus three against the Browns. It's pretty simple to me. Like I think the Browns defense is just really bad. The Bucks rush offense looked really good against the Seahawks. So maybe they're able to turn things around moving away from Leonard Fournette. And, you know, why Teller got downgraded from limited to did not practice on Thursday. So he's probably trending towards not playing and you need every interior guy you can get against the Bucks because Vita Vea is, you know, an absolute mammoth on the interior. I don't see the Bucks um, rush defense I, I don't see the Browns rush offense having much success against the Bucks run defense. You know, Nick Chubb only had 19 yards last week against a pretty stout Bills interior and, you know, front seven. So I think the Bucks will be able to hit, uh, put Chubb in those same situations, probably not to the tune of like 1.4 yards per carry, but something similar in like the 14 carries for like 30 yards or 40 yards. Um, and on the other side of the ball, the Bucks offense Again, looked pretty good against the Seahawks. And I, I don't think anyone on the Browns defense will be able to stop like the tr- uh, trio of Mike Evans, Chris Godwin, and you know Julio Jones or Russell Gage. Yeah, I, I really like that one. And I, I think all the points that you lay out there kind of show that the Bucs should should win this game. And you know, it is Jacoby Jacoby Brissett's last game uh, starting for for the Browns. And you know, he he had like a, a pretty good run with them. And I, I I do think that you know he's he's done enough to kind of play himself into mm-hmm. A, a deal so maybe he doesn't feel like a ton of pressure in this game to to go out strong as well there and and kind of has some, some senioritis uh as, <laughs> as he finishes up um i and then you know we, we previewed this game and you know i think we both like this side of, of tennessee plus two and a half against against the Bengals. um you know for all the reasons that we laid out you know rabel revenge game titans revenge game um you know they're they're at home uh, and and kind of like the the way that the Titans defense is able to play, where they're going to get a lot of pressure on Joe Burrow and and this Bengals offense. And you know, one of my favorite players in the league right now is David Long mm-hmm. um, for for the Titans. I think you know he, uh, my friend Michael just, Michael Vanit uh, described him as a Tasmanian devil playing back there. And you know, I think like all the stuff that he's able to do, where he's very twitchy and you know he he gets into the backfield you know very very quickly, almost too quickly on play action sometimes, which hurts him. But it overall helps him for stopping the run and getting to the quarterback on sacks. And you know the ability that he uses his arms to get past guards and stuff, you know, can, can really be taken advantage of. And we know that the Bengals guards aren't that good. So if you want to bet David Long sack uh, props in this game, like you and Judah bet sack props, Arjun, you know, feel, yeah. feel free to do that. But just the overall bet is Titans plus two and a half. Yeah. Uh, and for those who don't know, you know, DraftKings and FanDuel have sack props every Sunday. They usually re- release them on Saturday night. Uh, Sunday morning should be up also. I like David Long. Love Jeffrey Simmons as well. Mm-hmm. Um, if you get, if you're able to get Jeffrey Simmons up plus money, I would play that for like a full unit or something. But those are not official official bets. Our official bet here is tight ends two and a half. 
Last one is a player prop just because I don't really like anything else on the board. It's going to be Gerald Everett over receiving yards. This is a system play that I said every single week. It is called tight ends against the Cardinals. And, you know, no Mike Williams. So the Chargers will have to look to another pass catcher to kind of replace him. Josh Palmer had a really good game. Um, but the tight, the Cardinals are just an absolute sieve over the middle um, with you know, Isaiah Simmons and Xavier Collins, who are two uh, not very good coverage linebackers. Gerald Everett, tight end for the Chargers. So I like his receiving yards up to anything like 45 and a half. Even you could probably, you know, ladder his uh, receiving yards uh, 60 plus at plus money, 70 plus and get some good value there. I like him to score a touchdown as well. But my official bet, Gerald Everett over receiving yards, um, just, you know, tight ends against the Cardinals. And again, like Chargers need to have that third pass catcher um, that isn't uh, Keenan Allen and Josh Palmer. Yeah, that's, that's a great one. I, I do like the Cardinals uh, tight end, you know, opposing tight end angle there. So what do you what are you thinking for the lock of the week? Um, I don't know. I kind of, I kind of like the bucks minus three. Um, I, I really like the Titans as well. I just like, I'm a little worried about the line kind of moving against us since it did open up one and a half and now it's almost out to three, which I feel like it could hit three on game day. So, you know, betting against the line movements always, you know, not that great of a strategy, even if we think we are on the right side. So I kind of like the bucks minus three in the spot and I think they should be able to roll. All right, let's yeah, let's do it. Let's lock in Bucks minus three as lock of the week. Uh, that's that's all we have for for this episode. You know, remember that we're going to be doing a listener questions episode uh, on on next Wednesday's show. So you know, if you leave a review on Apple or Spotify, like let us know, and we'll put out a couple of tweets like asking for some listener questions. You know, just questions about the season. You know, kind of like league trends, all that stuff. I'm, you know, we're really excited to to do that. I think there's a lot of cool stuff that we're, we're going to be able to talk about. So if you want to just let us know any questions through text messages, DMs uh, on, on Twitter, you know, on the Apple review where you can leave uh, a comments along with, with your review, feel free to do that anytime, but appreciate everyone listening uh, and hope everyone had a good Thanksgiving and, and has a good rivalry week for college football and NFL Sunday. So that's, that's all we have until next time on take the points.